And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And without further ado, uh, I'd like to get started. I'm I'm very excited, uh, especially it's just serendipitous that it turned out yesterday was Vin Scully's 93rd birthday, that we uh, have the gentleman uh, coming on today. Uh, But before I introduce our featured guest, I just want to go down to Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, and bring on the Brooklyn trolley blogger himself, Mike LeColant. What's going on, Mike? Hello, Sam. Thank you for uh, the invite this evening. Yeah, it, and, you know, we, we don't talk enough broadcasting on here, so it, it's certainly our pleasure to welcome the voice of the AAA Indianapolis Indians for over 45 years now and, and a Sheepshead Bay Brooklyn native, and that is Howard Kelman. Howard, uh, thank you again for joining us. It's been a while since we got you on here. Well, I'm honored to be on with you guys, and thank you so much for inviting me, and I look forward to speaking with you. So, of course, you know, we, we went over your general uh, biography back on that first episode and, and, and when we were focusing on your Sheepshead Bay roots, but I do want anybody who has not heard that episode and has not heard from you to just give a little uh, overall view of who Howard Kelman, the Brooklynite, is. Went to PS206 in Brooklyn, and that public school produced Rico Petroselli and Vince Lombardi. And that was on the corner of East 23rd Street and Neck Road. And then I went to Cunningham Junior High School, Junior High School 234, and then Sheepshead Bay High School. Rico Petroselli was in the first graduating class of Sheepshead Bay High School in 1961. I'm a graduate, 1970. And then Brooklyn College is where I got my uh, degree in speech, radio, and television. And then in Indianapolis, virtually my entire adult life, broadcasting the Indianapolis Indians games. And uh, some of you out there might recognize him from doing some Mets games. If you could go into, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's really lovely as a, a native that you do have on record. You were part of the New York broadcasting lure. It was really 2014, and Howie Rose recommended me to WOR Radio in the Mets, and Tom Cuddy brought me aboard the PD at WOR Radio, a three-game series in Atlanta, and the Mets swept the series, and we had a lot of fun. It was great working with Howie. He and I first met in 1972, that fall, his freshman year at Brooklyn College, my junior year at Brooklyn College, and I was the sports director of the campus radio station WBCR, and he came up and did some sports casts, and then he transferred to Queens the next semester, and that's where he got his degree. So you had actually two guys, two City University of New York's CUNY graduates broadcasting the Mets games that weekend. Oh, that's great. And, and without further ado, I'm going to pass it over to uh, Mike, uh, another Brooklyn fellow, another Brooklyn College alum. I have so many things on my mind. First of all, Howard, uh, nice speaking with you again uh, on the heels of last night. Uh, as a Brooklynite, you say, you know, you rolled right into Indianapolis, right out of college in St. John's. I had an experience in the Army uh, being from Brooklyn, 
And when I graduated chemical school, my orders came, and they came for Texas. And I say to myself, what is a kid from Brooklyn going to do in Texas? Uh, I wound up loving the place. Uh, I really do have an affinity for Texas now. So you moved to Indianapolis. Was there, uh, did, were, were, were people struck by the novelty of you being from Brooklyn? And uh, yesterday we alluded to you having to somewhat lose your Brooklyn accent. Right. I had to work hard at losing that because I was in the broadcast business. And, oh, it was very interesting. It was culture shock for me going from Brooklyn and Brooklyn College out to Indianapolis. And uh, I remember having to slow down a bit because people, I was going so much faster than people were in terms of the way I'd walk or, or do things at a faster pace. And they would say to me, slow down, take it easy. And I remember <laughs> thinking, boy, it's a pleasure, a pleasure to drive a car in Indianapolis because the pace is, is slower. The one thing that I'll always remember is I opened up my first bank account, made a deposit, and then I didn't quite understand something about, and they explained it to me about how you had to keep your own record. I hadn't had that on the savings account. So anyway, I said to the fellow, I said, well, I'm sorry, I didn't quite realize it. I'm new in town. And he said, well, son, you're in a big city now. I said, oh, okay. I come from a small town back east. He said, where's that? I said, New York City. And he said, oh, oh okay. <laughs> because in the Army, the, the, the guys, they would just ask me to say anything, and they would crack up. They would get such a laugh out of it because of my accent. Uh, I, I, I'd like to go back to St. John's for a second and your broadcasting uh, days there. Now, this is obviously in, in 1973, I believe you said yesterday, because in 74, by 74, yes. you went in Indianapolis. Now, college basketball, was was that you, – you, you say you had help in, in trying to pioneer – uh, St. John's broadcast. Now, was that an easy endeavor coming off of, say, the 1950s when college basketball was really a, a prominent sport here in New York City? Well, the scandals are what really clobbered college basketball in New York City. The scandals in the early 50s and uh, late 40s, early 50s. In fact, it was a great HBO program. I think it was called City Dump about what went on and how terrible the whole thing was. And so uh, this is before the Big East, and St. John's rose to number nine in the nation that, that year. But we didn't have the great publicity. I remember Dick Clayman in the New York Post. I got to know him a little bit. I met Peter Vesey as well at some of the St. John's games. And it was, it was important, and St. John's got an NCAA bid, that year and lost to Penn in the first round. But, I mean, years later when you had the Big East, then it became very, very big. And, of course, St. John's went to the Final Four in 1985. I did come back and broadcast the games for a couple more years in the off season before I settled in Indianapolis. So I had a lot of fun. I, I'm still in touch with Jack Kaiser, who is the athletic director emeritus. He's been involved with St. John's for over 70 years. First as a student, he played baseball there, 
then as a baseball coach, then as the athletic director, and now as the athletic director emeritus. And I got to know Luke Karnaseka well, too. Frank Malsoff was the coach the first year I was there. And then Luke came back from the Nets. So there's some really great people, and I have a lot, lot of feel for the school and follow them closely. And growing up, uh, you say you were born in 52, so you spent your single-digit years in the 50s. And, uh, you know, the the game of stickball here is legendary. It, it's kind of died out uh, over the last generation. But bring us back. Paint, help us paint that picture of uh, the late 50s, early 60s in Brooklyn. Well, stickball was huge, and it advanced to the point where in my generation – you had stickball bats. You would buy a stickball bat at the store, whereas my father's generation, it was a broom handle, you know, and you'd, you'd cut it off and you'd have a stick. So it had advanced, and stickball was huge. At uh, PS206, I lived across the street from the school, and that was the place I hung out. Both, uh, not only when I was going there, but also when I was in junior high, high school, and college, and that was a great, great place. And we played stickball. We played softball. We played basketball. We had two kinds of stickball. One was in the inlet and one was outside, which we called running stickball. And I remember in 1967 when the Red Sox were involved in their impossible dream and their great run from ninth place to first place. And, of course, Rico Petroselli was a neighborhood hero, being a PS206 guy and a Sheepshead Bay High School guy. Whenever Rico's father, Mr. Petroselli, would go through the schoolyard to go to the grocery store, he'd walk through, all the games would stop, and he would get a standing ovation. So, uh, mm. you know, it was a great place to grow up and uh, a lot of fun. Sam? And in that uh, that vein, um when was the first time you heard baseball on the radio in Brooklyn? And, and uh, a man who was celebrating, as I said, his 93rd birthday, Vince Scully, was that man Vince Scully? No, because the Dodgers had left. I was five in 1957 when they left. I remember them being there, but it wasn't a fan yet. And I, I remember my dad going to Ebbets Field and taking my cousin, who was three years older than I was, and my uncle went too, and I was very disappointed they didn't take me, but they said I was a little too young. So I first became exposed to baseball in 1959. You had a unique four-year period in New York baseball history, 1958 to 61, when there was only one team, the Yankees, because the Mets' inception was 1962 and the Dodgers and Giants left at 57. So they was the first guy I was exposed to. It was Mel Allen, Phil Rizzuto, and Red Barber. But Mel Allen was a hero uh, of mine, and I was a big fan of Phil Rizzuto's too. And Red Barber's great days were in Brooklyn. The other thing that was going on then in 1959 and 1960 was Les Tider was recreating the Giant games. And my dad had been a Giant fan, and – I didn't quite understand how I'm seven and eight years old. He was explaining to me that Les Kiter was not at the ballpark the way Mel Allen and Phil Rizzuto and Red Barber were on the Yankee games. He was in the studio, and he'd get a Western Union ticker update, uh, ground ball to short, six to three, and 
whenever there was a fly ball hit to center field, you know, it was up to the announcer. He could embellish it any way he wanted to. In fact, when I got the Indianapolis job, had I gone to Spokane and I almost got that job, I would have been recreating games from Hawaii. But on recreations, the announcer could embellish it. So any time there was a fly ball to center, Willie Mays never made a routine catch in Les Kiter's eyes. It was a great catch. Ronald Reagan recreated Chicago Cub games on WHO in Des Moines. And Ronald Reagan said the one thing that you never wanted to do was say it was a beautiful day for baseball because if the ticker broke, you wanted to stall and you would say, well, it's raining now. So you wouldn't say it was a beautiful day for baseball. <laughs> uh, well, that, that's fantastic. So let's go to Red Barber, in fact, and see in, in many ways. I mean, you know, radio had obviously been – uh, people had broadcast before Red Barber got to Brooklyn, but Red Barber broadcasting Brooklyn games really changed the game. And, and what's interesting in, in talking about the accent, why is it that like something like, like the Southern accent with a New York City team, uh, and, and you know some Brooklynites out there are probably saying, it's not a New York City team, it's a Brooklyn team, but anyway. Um, what is it about the Southern accent that translates well and kind of is very comforting and helps that like you can't really go, you know, with a, with a New York accent. There's a line drive to center field or something like that. You know what I mean? I think in Red Barber's case, it was the expressions as a Southerner that he brought to the broadcast. And you're, you're right for bringing him up. And the key figure here is Larry McPhail because Red Barber was hired by Larry McPhail to broadcast the Cincinnati Reds games in the mid-1930s. And the New York teams at that time, all three New York teams had a deal amongst themselves that they would not allow radio. It was a verbal agreement. We wouldn't allow radio because they were afraid it would hurt attendance. And then Larry McPhail moved from the Reds to the Dodgers and became the GM of the Brooklyn Dodgers. One of the first things he did was hire Red Barber to broadcast the Dodger games. He brought them over from Cincinnati, and that was the end of that agreement. And then the Yankees and Giants quickly followed suit. The Yankees hired Mel Allen, and they had their own broadcasts as well. So the key figure was Larry McPhail. And what they found out, the fear that radio would hurt attendance is that radio created new fans. And TV did two years later. Then there was the fear that televising games would hurt attendance, and that proved unfounded also. Mike, if you want to pick it up from there. Uh, I have a question, and it goes back to 1959. If you can remember, I just, I've, I've just come across some information. I heard about it some time ago, but I have only now uncovered the information where Roy Campanella – in, 1959, he sponsored a Negro League team that played at Ebbets Field in 1959. Uh, and it, it had everything to do with the, that, uh, the United States Negro Baseball League uh, started up by uh, Branch Rickey, or partly by Branch Rickey. So my question to you is, do you have any recollection of these games taking place at Ebbets Field in 1959? There was about eight doubleheaders that took place that year. I have to tell you, I do not. I'm not aware of that. I had not heard that. I 
in January of 1958 is when Campy had the uh, automobile accident that left him in a wheelchair for the remainder of his life. But uh, I'm not aware of that, no. Right. As as the uh, story goes, it was after he started uh, recovering from the accident. Yes, he was wheelchair-bound, but as soon as his spirits lifted and he was able to get up and about, uh, yes, he sponsored this team. And like I said, I recently came across the information about the doubleheaders themselves. But I ran across the information some months ago, and I was just trying to be op- opportunistic, being uh, that you were on 59. No, yeah. I, I had not heard that. Uh, I do remember on Yankee telecast in this, for a number of years, I would be on between games of doubleheaders. And he would, and of course, you had a lot of doubleheaders back then. And he would interview people, and it was very nice, and that's, where, where I saw Roy Campanella the most was uh, on Yankee telecasts. And I've talked to Carl Erskine oh, so much about Roy over and, and uh, they had a great relationship. I'll tell you an important thing that people aren't aware of regarding the Dodgers' history in that game against the Giants, the shot heard around the world by Bobby Thompson. Now, we go back to October 1951. What happened was you, Carl Erskine and Ralph Branker were warming up in the bullpen, and many of you have heard this story. I would heard it. And Clyde Soupforth is called down by Chuck Dressen, the manager, the bullpen coach, Clyde Soupforth. He said, what do you think? And he said, Erskine bounced his curve. And then Dressen said, all right, give me Branker. So we brought in Ralph Franklin. Well, I'd heard that many times. But what I didn't know was this, is, is that the reason that was significant was that Roy Campanello was hurt that day. He had an injured leg, and he wasn't catching. And Rube Walker was catching. Now, Campy was great behind the plate, but Rube Walker was catching, and it was said of Rube Walker, he's even slower than he looked. And so... They were afraid of a wild pitch or pass ball. You know, Carl Erskine had the good curveball because the potential tying run was at second with only one out. So it was that fear of the wild pitch that probably is the reason that immediately Chuck Dressen said, okay, Erskine bounced his curve, give me Branca. So that's a little history behind, that's the story behind the uh, pitching change. And then, of course, Bobby Thompson hit the home run. Yeah, when you knew the fastball was coming, but we don't need to get into semantics about that telescope, of course. <laughs> um, uh, Carl Erskine, great place to go. Uh, one of your, your Indianapolis broadcasting partners over the years. Uh, so had you met him before he started broadcasting with you, just being in Indiana? What years was it uh, between? And tell us about that experience. Well, I met him when I first got to Indiana, but did not get to know. He's from Anderson, and Anderson is about 30 miles northeast of Indianapolis. And Carl has lived there his entire life. His path might have been different in his post-playing days because he might have gone into broadcasting. He did a little bit of it. He might have stayed in New York City. But unfortunately, his son Jimmy was born with Down syndrome in 1960, which is the year after he retired, and they decided it was best to go back to Indiana. Carl was a banker. 
He was involved with uh, as a baseball coach at Anderson University, Anderson College at that time. So we met and talked a few times over the years, but then we started broadcasting games together, and that was a oh a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. And uh, Carl's a wonderful man. He'll be 94 in a couple of weeks and still sharp, still sharp as can be. And I have great memories of all our conversations over the years. We'd have lunch. We haven't been able to do it this year, but Carl and Betty and my wife Robin and I, the four of us would have lunch in Indianapolis a couple of times a year, and Carl would come out to our ballpark, play the harmonica, plays it very, very well and would play take me out to the ball game and he'd come out to Victory Field. And so yeah, just just a great, great man. That's amazing. He's one of our Damn, favorites that so we're mind. gonna have him uh, on Friday. Uh yeah, go ahead, Mike. Uh Howard, you I I want you to take us back to a, a, a day in Brooklyn again. Take us back to Coney Allen before Steeplechase burnt down for the last time. You remember it. I remember going, I was very young, but I remember just my best memory is Nathan's and, and the hot dogs there. And I happen to remember being there at Nathan's in 1962 when the Giants and Dodgers, I was 10 at the time, the Giants and Dodgers were involved in that playoff, and this was the third game, and the Giants came from behind late in the game to win. And I remember being at Nathan's, listening on the radio and so forth with my parents. And wow. so – yeah, I have uh, a lot of uh, memories of Coney Island and, of course, the Cyclones, the Brooklyn Cyclones. I've never been to a game because the Indianapolis Indians are playing the same time, but my sister and her family go, and the, the Cyclones are just a great franchise. Uh, they're my number one team. <laughs> I'm a Met fan, but Brooklyn Cyclones are my number one team. <laughs> well, now they're going to move up. And be a class. Yeah. They won't be short season. There'll be no more short uh, regular class A. So you'll have a full schedule now of uh, over 130 games. Sam and I are thrilled about it. We've been saying that uh, once that season does kick off, uh, it'll be the first time a Brooklyn team will take the field in April since the Dodgers left. We can't wait for that day. Yes, well said. I don't care how cold it is that day. It could be snowing. I'm I'm going if they let us into the ballpark. Uh, that's for sure. So, Howard, talk about some of your other influences other than uh, the great tandem of the Yankees at the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, who are some other ones that jump out to you and also some contemporaries? Well, Mel Allen and Phil Rizzuto, as I said, were my favorite baseball announcers, but uh, I became friendly with some broadcasters in New York who were very nice to me. And the first one was Marv Albert. And I met him during my freshman year uh, at college, at Brooklyn College. What happened was my father was a furniture salesman in downtown Brooklyn, and it turned out he worked next door to Bill Chadwick, the big whistle, who was Marv's color commentator on Ranger radio broadcast at the time. And so – uh, my dad talked to him, and he introduced me to Marv Albert. And Marv was very nice to me, would critique my tapes during my college years. And then in the 1980s, when he was doing television with the Knicks, I would do the stats for him when they'd come to Indiana. And Marv said, I want you to get to know Marty Glickman. 
And Marty introduced me to Marty Gluckman a few years later, and Marty was a mentor and tremendous man. And, and, you know, I remember him doing the Knicks in the 1962-63 season, the Knicks on radio, and he, perfect announcer, I thought, at the age of 10 and 11, listening to him. And But he did the Giants. At that time, he was more well-known for football. Originally, it was basketball and everybody in my parents' generation would say Marty Glickman was the best basketball announcer they ever heard. And in my generation, the best football announcer we've ever heard. I mean, I didn't get to hear that many radio football announcers growing up in New York. I heard Merle Harmon with the Jets, who I thought was really good, too. But Marty, to this day, and in the Midwest, I've heard a ton of football announcers on radio over the years. There's everybody and there's Marty. Everybody else in Marty. Marty was so great. And one of the ways I can quickly describe it is the great word picture he painted in that most announcers will say the handoff goes to so-and-so, he hits the right side of the line, gets a few yards, where Marty would say he busts off his own right guard for four yards. He drives off his own right tackle for three yards. So Marty was incredibly descriptive. And uh, and in those days, in the 60s and through 1972, and then Marty changed and went to the Jets, in, I believe, in 73. But till Congress passed the anti-blackout law in 1973, you couldn't watch home games on TV. So all the home games, all the Giants games at Yankee Stadium were on the radio. That's where you had to listen. And so Marty was such an important figure, and he was a great man and a great broadcaster. Mike, do you have any memories uh, of uh, listening to Marty Glickman? Uh, vague. Uh, I'm aware of him. I'm educated on the man. Uh, but as far as listening to him, no. Uh, I was born in 67. so. And for the early years of my life, I spent uh, a couple of them outside the country. So a lot of those memories are spotty to me. And sometimes I can't put a, a voice to a name to a face, so it's difficult. But what I will ask uh, Mr. Kelman is, in the early 70s, uh, New York City was a very interesting sports town. I would like your opinion on who would you say was the preeminent, uh, how should I say, power broker insofar as the owners of New York City teams. You had Joe, Joan Payson. You had the Mara brothers. Uh, Sonny Werblin and CBS was still in charge of the Yankees, but who would you say was the was the preeminent uh, broker of New York City sports back then? Well, what happened was you had the Jets, the Mets, and the Knicks all winning within a span of a year and a half, and all winning champions. So, I mean, with Sonny Werblin giving Joe Namath that track. AFL and ultimately forced the merger and the Jets winning the Super Bowl in January of 69. Then that fall, the Mets winning the World Series. And the following year in May of 1970, I remember the date, May 8, 1970, the Knicks winning the championship. Willis Reed hobbling onto the court and Walt Frazier playing a phenomenal game. But I, I really feel it's hard to say one of those three was by far, you know, because uh, basketball became so popular in New York, and the Knicks were so popular when they won that championship. 
And, of course, baseball was a national pastime, but football become very popular. The Yankees were going through a down period in that, in that era. They really were. And what the Mets, the Mets winning was incredible for the city of New York. Uh, I remember Michael Burke, the Yankee president, sending a telegram to the Mets and saying, as a New Yorker, I think this is great. As a baseball fan, it's wonderful. As president of the Yankees, I'm a bit suicidal. But, uh, you know, uh, it, it's hard to, hard to pick which was the most because they all had tremendous impacts. All three of those championships had incredible impact. And what would you say was the, the mood, the sense, and the anticipation of National League fans before the Mets took the field, knowing that they were coming? Well, they were glad to get a team back. Uh, and, again, it's beyond my memory because I was five years old. But when the Dodgers left Brooklyn, the Giants were going to move anyway. They were going to go to Minneapolis, and the Giants were not drawing a lot of people back then. But when the Dodgers left Brooklyn, it had an incredibly devastating effect on the borough. And people would make fun of Brooklyn accents. People would kid about Brooklynites. But the one thing Brooklyn could say was, we have the Dodgers. And when they left, there was an incredible void. So when New York got National League Baseball, there was, uh, they were very happy to have a team back in New York City. And, of course, you had a guy in Casey Stengel who was so funny. And so humorous, and I could start telling stories about that. But that meant so much. And Casey, of course, had been fired by the Yankees in 1960 after losing the seventh game of the World Series, won 10 pennants in 12 years there, but they felt it was time for a change. Casey said, I'll never make the mistake of being 70 years old again. And so uh, when the Mets came into existence, there was a great anticipation. And then, of course, after the two years at the Polo Grounds, they moved into Shea Stadium to coincide with the World's Fair in Queens that year, and they had the All-Star Game at Shea Stadium in 1964. So it all came together for the Mets. I was thinking that we'd go down the Howard rabbit hole, if you will, uh, and, you know, some great broadcasters in uh, sports history, uh, Howard Kelman, Howie Rose, although I don't think he – I, I looked it up, and his name is indeed Howard originally. Uh, but then Howard Cassell, uh, we were talking about Brooklyn, and, of course, he married a Brooklyn gal. Um, but I, I was wondering, you both – I'll start with you, Howard, if you have your memories of uh, Howard Cassell, and then I'll pass it over to you, Mike. Well, I do remember Howard Cassell very, very well, and uh, – He's most well-known for the stance he took with Muhammad Ali in that Ali was stripped of his heavyweight title for refusing to be inducted into the armed forces, and Cosell said this was not right because he was stripped of his title without due process. Cosell had background as a lawyer, and then Cosell was on Monday Night Football, too. There's a story I tell when I give speeches about Cosell and about what happens when you have challenges. I was watching this fight on TV on ABC. Cosell was announcing it. The heavyweight champion, Larry Holmes, fighting Randall Tex Cobb, the challenger. And Larry Holmes administered quite a beating to Tex Cobb that night. The fight kept going on. It was ugly. 
and smiling about the ninth round, Cosell said on the air, this fight is a disgrace. It never should have taken place in the first place, and because of it, I am through with boxing. I never will announce boxing again. Well, the fight finally ends, and there's Tex Cobb, bloody, I mean, one eye shut, blood coming down in his dressing room headquarters, and a reporter comes up to him and says, Tex, Howard Cosell said you took such a beating tonight from Larry Holmes that he'll never announce boxing again. And there's Tex Cobb, as I said, with the blood coming down and eyes shut, says to the reporter, you go fight Larry Holmes again if Cosell wants to get off Monday Night Football, too. Mike, I didn't know that Howard Cosell did the pre- and post-game in those early years for the Mets. You know what? Neither did I, I. remember that. Neither did I. I remember that uh, very well. I think he called yeah, the Clubhouse really- Journal, and he did it with Ralph Branca. And it was on in 1962 and 63, and Cosell and Casey Stengel hated each other. So Cosell was <laughs> criticizing Stengel all the time, and that may have been why the Mets left WABC after the 1963 season. Wow. Yeah. Wow, yeah. It, it, you know, you just go to Wikipedia me. and you find out some random stuff. Go ahead, Mike. That's certainly a new one on me. I, I remember watching that Randall Tex Cobb fight, and Larry Holmes was begging the referee to stop the fight, and he just wouldn't. So... Larry Holmes continued to do what he does, which is punch people. Uh, so I don't put that on Holmes. And by this time, you know, Cosell wa- was becoming a bitter man, I believe. Uh, that was my impression, and that was the scuttlebutt. Uh, and he was uh, he was turning on the sport that gave him prominence. And as you say, he had that relationship with Muhammad Ali. Now, what I remember, uh, I saw the fight. Uh, between Frazier and Foreman, my uncles took me. It was on closed circuit. Uh, we saw it, I believe, uh, somewhere up in Manhattan. Uh, but I, I will say, you know, the highlights afterwards of listening to Howard Cosell, down goes Frazier. Not just that. It's it's Howard Cosell saying, I told you. I told you this was going to happen. I called it, which he did. He was pronouncing Frazier as the winner uh, the, uh, excuse me, Foreman is the winner uh, throughout. And uh, that goes unspoken. Uh, yes, down goes Frazier, but he kept on repeating and 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 and, and just hammering it home that I called this. I told you. I told everybody. That's something that stands out uh, with Howard Cosell. That, and I would say the 77 World Series when he famously said the Bronx is burning. I was watching that on TV. Uh, I could the the game might be wrong, but it was uh, it could have been a Monday Night Baseball or it could have been the World Series, one of the two. But he was uh, he was doing the game, and uh, that's when he famously said the Bronx was burning. Uh, I remember him also as a uh, a more pleasant fellow, as opposed to what was being said about him from his appearances on the Odd Couple show, uh, where he played a very uh, you know very. Uh, interesting character himself. <laughs> yeah. Well, he did. He had his own TV show for a while and last too long. 
but uh, he was a very bright guy, and he had an impact. He spoke extemporaneously very well. You know, he'd come in there and do his – he used to have sports casts on WABC radio, and plus he was on the uh, 6 o'clock news as the sportscast for a number of years, too, on Channel 7 WABC. And so, you know, he'd ask questions in a period when a lot of Sam? Hey, Howard, are you there? Yes. We may have – oh, there we go. Uh, yeah, we lost you for a second, but I don't mean to go – I, I uh, did not lose you guys. Howard. I heard you. Oh, <laughs> well, good. Yeah, no, you, you cut off for a second. We're not sure where you ended, but uh, um, we it, I don't need to go down the Howard Cassell rabbit hole, but I'm, I'm just looking at his Wikipedia pages. There's some interesting things, and uh, I'll, I'll start – uh, Howard, with uh, we we I don't we may have on the last podcast talked about your ethnic and religious background, uh, which of course comes up in Brooklyn since it's it's one of the the greatest melting pots in the world. But looking at it, uh, Howard Cassell was originally Cohen, and you, you did see that with a lot of Jewish folks within any rank within the 20th century, and it still happens to this day. Uh, where they change their names to not look so Jewish, to not sound so Jewish. Um, I, you know, I, I'm I'm lucky, I guess, or you, it, it, you don't really want to look at it as, as luck, but my last name's Maxwell. My middle name is Markman. That is the Jewish side of my family, my mother's side. My dad converted. What is it, do, you know, like, do you think at this point look, people need to put themselves out there, which obviously plenty of Jew, Jewish people do, with their, their names, but why do you think people feel so inclined uh, because of the way society reacts to still, to this day, change their name because of the, the Jewish uh, inflections it may have? I don't think you have as many people doing it now as you did years ago. Mel Allen's name was Melvin Abraham Israel, and, he, and Allen was the English translation, so he to his middle name, so he changed it to Mel Allen. And Hilliard Gates was a well-known sportscaster in Indiana. His name was Hilliard Gatowski, and he changed it and shortened it to Gates. But uh, I think it's a different era. There is some of that true. There is some. Marv Albert changed his name. His name was Africtig, and uh, then his brothers, of course, did so too. But uh, I don't think it's done quite as frequently as it was done back in the days of, of Mel Allen, you know, and, and guys from years and years ago. So uh, I think that's, that's the best way I could answer that. It, it is done sometimes, but not much. Mike, is that, you know, it's good that it doesn't happen as often, but I do know that, uh, you know, some people still feel inclined to do so. Um, Look at where, where are you Cohen. Coming? Right. Gary That's a Cohen good with the Mets, Gary. Yeah. You know, keeping his name. And I once said, Marty Glickman once said to me, I'm glad you didn't change your name. I said, well, some people told me to, but I didn't want to, and I didn't. So, But uh, Gary Cohen, I think, is a great example. And there are other – how about Steve Levy is another example. Mm-hmm. Those guys have had a great deal of success. Exactly. So the question becomes, I guess, do you think 
and obviously it depends on the era, Mike, but do you think that uh, Marv Albert or uh, Mel Allen could have had the same success by keeping their names? <laughs> oh, I think in I think in Marv Albert's case, I would say yes. Uh, Mel Allen's case might have been different. You know, he came along a long time before uh, Marv Albert, but uh, Mel Allen, he still might have had, uh, he still might have been very successful. Mel Allen had a great sound, a great voice, and he popularized the term "How about that?" Whenever I hear people say "How about that." I said, do you know the man who popularized that term? And he used to get letters at Yankee Stadium addressed to Mr. How About That. And he also popularized Going, Going, Gone. And one of the greatest moments a broadcaster's ever had, he had at Yankee Stadium on June 8th, 1969, which was Mickey Mantle Day at Yankee Stadium. Mel had been fired five years earlier by the Yankees, and they brought him back to introduce Mickey Mantle. Frank Messer, the Yankee announcer, emceed the ceremony, but they introduced Mel Allen, who would introduce Mickey Mantle. And 60,000 people plus were the actual attendance. Crazy when Mel Allen stepped on that field, and it was just incredible. It brought tears to my eyes. And then Mel looked up at the fans and said, after a pause, when the applause died down, he said, hello there, everybody. And the crowd just roared because that was his opening line. And it was just, I think, one of the greatest moments a broadcaster's ever had. Oh, man, that's beautiful. Yeah, and, and I think that's where I'm going to go next, too, just in terms of broadcasting and, and baseball broadcasting in general, comparing and contrasting to the other sports. Uh, it's such a different uh, you know, it's, it's such a different landscape of all different types of media. Um, but after all this time, one, what is it about baseball on the radio that still resonates? And do you think that most people, baseball fans or not, kind of understand that it is the most superior game to hear on the radio? Uh, you know, and of course, that's very subjective, but I think a lot of people, even if somebody likes basketball more, but, you know, kind of casually follows baseball, does tend to understand that. Well, I think that's a great point, and I, I think that there's something about your imagination when you listen on the radio, and particularly baseball, it's a relaxing game and the pause between pitches and the storytelling, and that's one reason why I think it's the greatest thing in, in the job in the business is to broadcast baseball on radio, and I'm very fortunate to have done that my entire adult life. Uh, I enjoy basketball and football on radio too, but there is something about baseball on radio where maybe you're doing six other things at the same time, but you still know what's going on in the game, put it out on a summer night. And when you go back, when you go back to the Dodgers and Red Barber, like we talked about earlier, and this is so critical because – Red Barber broadcast the Dodgers in Brooklyn from 1939 to 1953. And this is before air conditioning became prominent. So people would hang out in the summertime. They'd be outside on their stoops, on their porches. And what did they do? They had the Dodger broadcast on because that was the thing to do. And it was said that in the streets of Brooklyn, 
you could walk up and down and not miss a pitch. So you could hear one radio after another tuned to Red Barber calling the Dodger games. Mike, take it away. A question. Uh, I, again, Sam, I'm probably counterproductive to you because I'm, 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 I'm so thirsting for information. <laughs> when Gil Hodges passed away, what was the sense and how did it strike you? Well, it felt very, very sad. Uh, I didn't see his good years with the Dodgers. I saw him at the end, and I remember him being with the Mets. I think he was an original Met. I know he was there in 1962. And then I know he had a heart attack in 1968, I think the final week or two. And then it was in the spring of 1972 that he passed away, and he was less than 50 years old. And he was really a great man. And uh, I was still in New York. I was attending Brooklyn College at the time. And, in fact, at that moment, baseball was on strike. The players were on strike. It was the end of spring training. And so, anyway, uh, you know, uh, the thing I mentioned is so important about the kind of man he was. And he also, you know, you, you hear about when you hear about Jackie Robinson, his arm around him in Cincinnati and Pee Wee's support. Well, Gil was supportive of Jackie and very important, too, because Gil Hodges was a strong guy. And you'd have plays at second base where somebody might come in hard. And Gil would walk over there and say, everything okay over here? So he was very supportive and make sure things didn't get out of hand as far as Jackie was concerned, because Jackie went through a lot. So uh, as a, a player, a guy who should be in the Hall of Fame, and as the manager of the Miracle Mets, and uh, a guy from Indiana who became a New Yorker, uh, he was a terrific man. In your experience, what has been the biggest change in baseball, for better or worse? Well, there are a lot of changes. The game has changed more in the last five years, and what, what's Uh, I mean, I loved doubleheaders as as a kid, but I can understand why they don't have them anymore because the game has done so well at the gate. But I I don't like the fact that in the last five years, the strikeouts have gotten so high and out of control that a player doesn't care or, you you know, I shouldn't say doesn't care, but there used to be an embarrassment to striking out. I remember Jody Davis, who caught with the Cubs and other guys, had said to me, Jody was managing Louisville, he said to me a couple of years ago, he said, we wouldn't, uh, there's no way I'm going to a hundred times. You know, you took pride in not striking out and moving a runner along. So I would like to see something done about that, the preponderance of strikeouts and walks, and it's become a game where guys are throwing very, very hard. They deserve credit for that. But uh, I'd like to see runners moved along a little more like the old days as opposed to feast or famine, home run or strikeout. I love home runs, don't get me wrong, but you could see too many of them too. So that's really changed in the last five years. Sinker ball was always a great pitch, nothing like a first pitch ground ball to shortstop. But now sinker ball has been negated to some extent because of the launch angle and these guys always trying to uppercut 
So the fastball that's elevated is more important than the sinker now. So if you throw a sinker like a Jared Hughes or a Kyle Gibson, you have to pick your spots and you can't throw it as frequently as you used to. So, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of other changes. You know, you saw interleague play. Uh, I'm not there. I'm not in New York, but I would think there's a nice buzz when the Yankees and Nets get together. So I would think that's a good thing. Although a lot of people feel it's out interleague play has outlived its usefulness. Uh, You saw the designated hitter in 1973, and that's going to be in both leagues, if not 2021, I think by 2022. So uh, I'm trying to think of what else over the years, but all the expanded playoffs, uh, when you went from, you know, through 1968, you had to win the pennant or you went home. And then in 1969, divisional play, then they added a wild card, then they had three divisions and another wild card. Now it was up to 10 teams, and 10 out of 30 still is not a huge amount. It's a lot, not a huge amount. And this past year, you know, they just did something different having all those teams because of the shortened season. But the one thing about baseball, as opposed to the other sports, take the NBA. In the NBA, the playoffs mean everything, and they should. But in baseball, while the playoffs and the postseasons become very, very important, in a short series in baseball, anything can happen. And the better team isn't necessarily going to win. Where in basketball, the overwhelming majority of times, the better team is going to win a best of seven. So I think you have to be careful not to cheapen a baseball season because it's in the regular season that you have a true test of 162 games, what you can do. On a personal level, Sam, this is my last question. On a personal level, we spoke about Corny Allen. You grew up in Sheepshead Bay. You go to Brooklyn College. In 1970, what's an 18-year-old and his friends doing for fun in Brooklyn? (laughs) Well... I got to tell you, I was not a wild kid. And what I used to do is go out to the schoolyard and play ball and watch the Yankees or the Knicks or the Mets or the football Giants and Jets. You know, I was a sports fan, and uh, I had my mind made up. I wanted to be a sportscaster. So, you know, I'd go to a movie occasionally and but I, I'd go to the ballpark, watch the games on TV, listen on the radio. That was basically what I was doing. Visit my grandparents on the weekends, and uh, that was that was basically it. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and we greatly appreciate that you have. Our guest today is the voice of the AAA Indian, Howard Kelman, a Brooklyn native, Sheepshead Bay, and uh, we, we greatly thank him for joining us today. Uh, we're we're coming into our last ten minutes, so uh, Howard, I, I I want to talk about some other guys uh, uh, in broadcasting and, and the, the the folks. Like, let's give Bob Euchre some love. How about that? Um, I I think it's it's unbelievable that he was able to help bridge the, the pop culture and baseball broadcasting because he's synonymous with both. Oh, he's he's incredible, and the movies and the way that, you know, and the light beer commercials. And I'll never forget the first time I met him. It was at County Stadium in Milwaukee. I was up there after our season had ended, and I 
introduce myself. And he said with a very serious look on his face, did you hear about that new school that I'm opening up? And I said, no, no, I haven't heard. He said, it's a pass ball school for catchers. And I started laughing. And uh, he's just, he's so funny. And part of it, he, part of it is he's great at a routine. You know, he was on Johnny Carson all those times. That's all available on YouTube. But I think my favorite line, because it was not part of a routine, uh, the man is incredibly funny, was uh, the broadcast with Howard Cosell, Bob Euchre, and Al Michaels. And Cosell would say things that were not exactly correct, and they would try to gently correct him. It's a baseball broadcast on ABC. And so one time, Euchre gently corrected Cosell, and Cosell said, you know, Bob, you're being rather truculent. And there's a big pause. And then Cosell says, Bob, you do know what truculent means, don't you? And Euchre said, yes, if I borrowed a truck from you, that would be the truculent. And, and you know, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> Mike, I will uh, take, you know, pass it over to you for Bob Euchre. Well, Sam, you mentioned he was both a player and a broadcaster, and I'm going to phrase it this way, and I'm going to reincorporate Howard Cosell into this. He despised when the athlete left the field and stepped into the broadcast booth, whereas Cosell felt himself uh, a trained and educated professional in his craft. Uh, And a lot of times that, you know, uh, showed – and people can hear it on the Monday Night Football broadcast. So, Howard, my question to you, as somebody who went to school and studied and majored and became a professional in this field of journalism and broadcasting, how, what, what is your opinion uh, to the novice stepping off the field and into the broadcast booth and in some instances perhaps bumping somebody who went through you know, the traditional methods of gaining that type of employment? Well, I think it depends. Some guys are good and some guys aren't good. Now, as far as an analyst is concerned in football, you know, you have, you're going to have an analyst in basketball, baseball, the color commentators are going to be ex-athletes or ex-coaches. So you, you accept that. It's the play-by-play guys that some people have an issue with. Now, you usually don't see an ex-athlete becoming a play-by-play guy in football or basketball. Pat Summerall certainly was an exception. There are more of them in baseball. It's, it's definitely true. And uh, it just depends. I remember when I was trying to get a big league job with the White Sox and thought I had a chance, I'd fill it on their broadcast. Well, I hired Del Crandall, the ex-catcher. So I was disappointed. But, you know, it, you, you can't bat your head against the wall for it. Uh, I would like to tell you one thing, too, about Euchre as a player. The greatest thing he did was when he was catching with the Braves, instilled confidence in Phil Necro. Necro was throwing a knuckleballer, was young, and didn't have much experience and confidence, and and Euchre said, you just keep throwing it. 
and Negro did and developed the confidence and became a Hall of Fame pitcher. So, and by the way, speaking of the Hall of Fame and broadcasting, you know what the quickest way, speaking of former players, the quickest way to get to the broadcaster's wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame, the Ford Frick Award, become a catcher on a world champion St. Louis Cardinal team. There are three of them, Joe Garagiola, Tim McCarver, and Bob Eucher, all in the broadcaster's wing of the Hall of Fame and all ex-Cardinal catchers on the Cardinal teams. Here's my last question then, Howard. What is it about both Indiana and the job with the Indians that just made you become – I mean, everybody's going to be compared and contrasted to you once you you retire. So uh, what what was it about that gig that solidified you for for your entire career and and for that team? Well – one thing, and there have been a few changes in general managers over the years here, but they've all been great. Uh, the first thing is I've worked for great people. Had I not worked for great people, I don't think I would have stayed here from uh, Max Schumacher, Cal Burleson, Bruce Schumacher, Randy Lewandowski, current president and GM. They're all terrific people. And in the 1980s, I was applying for major league jobs and was close several times. And then things got so good for me that I decided to stay when I started announcing the high school football and basketball game of the week two in 1990. And then for almost 20 years, I didn't look at anything. So uh, I feel that uh, I've been treated very well by, by fans here, by people, by management, by so many different factions that that's why I decided to stay. And, uh, you know, broadcast the baseball, basketball, football, have hosted TV shows and radio shows, and also give speeches. So I have a great situation here for a number of reasons, and there's nothing like doing baseball on the radio on a daily basis, and I'm proud to say I've done that virtually my entire adult life. And it's a beautiful thing you do. And before we go, I just want to pass it back over to Mike. Uh, to to wrap us up with uh, any questions you, that might be lingering in your head, Mike. Nothing lingering. I, I would just like to reiterate uh, on behalf of Brooklynites, uh, thank you for an outstanding career and representing the borough as you do. Uh, I'm just impressed with the whole history of the organization, the Indianapolis Indians, uh, and your lengthy and, and, and rather stellar career, sir. Um, the longevity of the organization and your career together. Uh, I'm sure you enjoy a tremendous symbiotic relationship with the fan base. And uh, I I would think you're living Nirvana over there in Indianapolis. So good luck to you and congratulations. Well, thank you so much for those kind words that of you. And I thank uh, all of you guys as well. Enjoyed being on with you and keep up the great work. We greatly appreciate it, Howard, and we thank all of you for listening to a Bedford & Sullivan podcast. We will catch you next time. Take care.